Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com, or you can also find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Today I have with me Dr. Tom Murray, co-owner of A Path to Wellness, and Dr. Tom says that for more than 20 years, he has been an advocate for cultural and sexual misfits. Uh, he says, all too often people are forced into increasingly narrow a narrow definition of normal, and the mounting pressures contribute significantly to emotional and psychological distress. So, uh, Dr. Tom, I'll let you explain a little more, but hey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Angela, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Yeah, well, so tell us a little more about what you do and, and how you do it. Yeah, so I've been in private practice for um, what, now on four years. Uh, prior to that, I was the University Counseling Center director and then went into private practice focusing near exclusively on sex therapy and couples therapy um, with that emphasis on a sex-positive perspective, uh, helping my clients experience um, a much more fulfilling, meaningful sex life uh, and owning really their uh, own style of being a sexual person. You know, we're sexual beings 24-7. Our sexuality doesn't end just because we leave the house. Uh, and so helping people to really embrace their, their sexuality and integrate it as a part of their personhood. I'm curious, who do you consider a sexual misfit? <laughs> Well, you know, those uh, uh, people who have been historically marginalized or oppressed uh, uh, because of their sexual interests, and we can think about, you know, people who are uh, involved in the lifestyle, uh, kink, BDSM, uh, or it can be people who uh, are queer folk, um, LGBTQI community um, uh, you know, people who, again, um, have been pushed onto the margins, uh, pushed out to the margins, um, providing them for a space, uh, with a space to uh, examine their own uh, sexuality without fear of judgment. All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. <laughs> Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. 
And basically, they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked Laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. Well, so quick, um, just uh, information for people listening. How would you, so you said the lifestyle, but not everybody listening knows what that means. So I'm curious if you would mind explaining to people, what is the lifestyle? Well, lifestyle can can really be different for different people. Um, the BDSM lifestyle uh, um, can be one example. Um, the swinger lifestyle can be uh, another example. Uh, but often it's a uh, an integrated, just an integrated part of their life that is outside of what may be more properly thought of as traditional. Mm-hmm. Do, do people find you when they're actually kind of struggling to integrate that? Or are usually people finding you that they are integrated, they just needed a therapist who's kind of respectful and understanding of their needs? Yeah, sometimes it can be a, a desire to uh, experiment um, within a particular uh, relationship. So... Maybe someone is is um, in a committed partnership and wants to explore um, perhaps a BDSM um, uh, community, and that triggers tremendous amount of anxiety in their in their partner, and that's you know been uh, has developed some tension there. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, you know within the poly community, for example, I've worked with. Um, uh, throuples and quads uh, around the the dynamics and and helping them to guide you know guiding them through identifying their own uh, sets of values as, as it relates to the um, dynamics that they have and um, hopefully making it work for their specific situation. Yeah, that's one thing, I, you know, so I obviously work in similar similar fields as a sex therapist as well. And it's always interesting because you have to kind of get, it's like people in these worlds are often paving their own paths. There's some examples out there of what they can and like can embrace and cannot embrace, right? But like, it's still, it's their road and their journey to to create. And sometimes there aren't a lot of examples of here's what a good situation looks like or you know, we're, we're kind of learning through trial by fire in some ways. <laughs> Are you noticing that too? Yeah, and, and, and of course, um, what is more readily available in the public consciousness are the the examples where it didn't work. And it's so easy to assume that if those are the narratives that you hear, then that must reflect kind of a standard quality of this uh, non-traditional way of 
of living, right? In other words, mm-hmm. um, it must be impossible to be engaged in a non-monogamous uh, relationship or poly relationship, and uh, and for it to be successful. And and of course, uh, uh, we don't hear about the successes, but there are plenty of examples out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, a silly joke I kind of tell my clients is just that nobody comes in saying, I feel great. Here's my money. <laughs> you know, like they come in <laughs> when they're having problems, right? Like that's the reason we get hired. Right. So even for us, we can sometimes be, unless we actually have people in our lives that are showing that kind of example of positive, no, this can actually be a positive thing. We can even be skewed at times in terms of the clients we work with because, of course, we're just going to see people who are struggling with it, not necessarily people are just happy-go-lucky all the time. And and then also life is, is one that ebbs and flows. So there's times when things are better and times when things are worse too, you know? You know, I think um, context can bring about um, surprising feelings for people. So someone who may not be uh, uh, primed to experiencing jealousy might find that, uh, oh, uh, they are now experiencing jealousy because they've opened up their relationship and they never had that experience before. Mm-hmm. And so how does, how they navigate that new feeling? What are some of the things that you help people to do to navigate jealousy? Cause I, I think that's a, that's a cool question of like, what, what, what does one do when you feel jealous in these situations? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, for for a lot of um, people who experience jealousy, you know, jealousy is um, that felt sense of needing to protect what you believe is already yours, right? Um, and so there's an element of possess- possessiveness that that surrounds it, um, and how I help uh, clients who experience jealousy is I, I look at some of the dynamics surrounding it. And, and the most common dynamic is a fear of no longer being perceived as special by one's partner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, you know, kind of how, how am I going to be different if you're going to have these same experiences with other people, namely, if you're going to have sexual experiences with other people, then what makes our relationship special? And so that that idea of specialness um, is, 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 you know, we take some time to, to, to really look at that. Um, also, uh, uh, it includes exposing um, the person to the concept of compersion, you know, that ability to derive um, pleasure, if you will, from the knowing that their partner ex- is experiencing enjoyment uh, uh, outside of the of the of the relationship, and so their experience of enjoyment um, can can one can derive their own personal enjoyment out of it. Do you think that com- so like I've actually I'm on a few uh, Facebook groups in this in this like arena of like poly and open relationships and I'm curious if you think compersion is a means to help with jealousy 
or is it a completely separate thing? Because there's a lot of debate in these groups around what role conversion plays. Yeah, I think in I think in in general, conversion is just a a wonderful um, component to relationships. Um, uh, and so, to cultivate conversion, I think is just is, is in broadly speaking, is just a, a good value uh, to have within relationships. Otherwise, when um, jealousy. Uh, or I'm sorry, when monogamy is used as a cure for jealousy, uh, that perpetuates this dynamic of a person being more like property rather than being a person. Uh, and so if, 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 one, if one believes in the autonomy of the other, then uh, one has to experience the anxiety that comes with that freedom. You know, there's always, there's that tension between anxiety and freedom and, and, and getting more comfortable with the uncertainty of life. And, and what monogamy can do is create an illusion that I call pseudo certainty, <laughs> right? This idea that the person will always be there. Uh, and, um, I talked about this just the other day on my Instagram, uh, Dr. Tom Murray, that um, when we believe that our, when we, when we expect our partner is going to be there tomorrow, that has an impact on how we care about our relationship today. And, and usually it just, it, it decreases the motivation to care for the relationship today. And so when one is engaged in, and an open relationship, ethical non-monogamy. Um, I think it 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 necessitates a, a degree of intentionality um, that is often missing within the context of a monogamous relationship. Yeah, I can definitely see that. As as you were talking, I was thinking about how the concept of compersion could be valuable in all relationship types. Like, I was thinking, you know, picture your typical even monogamous couple. Um, like, you should... So, for those of you kind of listening in who don't know much about compersion, compersion is just the ability to feel joy from your partner's joy. Like, so, um, one way I see couples do this is if their partner really likes something, like they're geeking out to something. Is You know, I, I have a lot of geek culture <laughs> clients, which I love. Um, but so like, say they're geeking out about Star Wars and they're just talking about it and they're like totally in a buzz talking about it. You may know nothing about Star Wars, but there can be a compersion or an excitement you feel watching them geek out about that situation, right? And so that's an example, even in a non-monogamous or in a monogamous, well, now I'm just missing all those words, <laughs> monogamous, non-monogamous, whatever. In a basic relationship, it's an example of how people can have compersion. But then in non-monogamous relationships, people are attempting to have a type of compersion for the fact that their partner is going on a date with someone else and they're cultivating a love relationship or feeling connected to somebody new and that there's an excitement when you can see your partner feel joy towards something, even if it's not yourself. And to your point, I think 
it is valuable for people to have that skill in a relationship because it's not, it isn't about ownership. It isn't about owning another person or all of their time, but it is sometimes about even valuing their individuality and the things that matter to them, even if they don't necessarily matter to you personally. Now, do you think, mm-hmm. as you were talking, you mentioned sometimes people don't value the relationship as much because it's like, well, I know you're going to be there tomorrow. Is is not? Do you see non-monogamy as an antidote to that, or is it more that maybe people can learn from non-monogamous concepts to keep cultivating that sense of working for the relationship? Yeah, you know, um, as I've over the years uh, grown as a as a therapist and as a sex therapist, I've basically landed on this idea that there's no way. Of, there's no one way of relating that's better than any other way, mm-hmm. but each way brings with it its own set of uh, uh, pros and cons, and and it becomes really a conversation around which set of uh, benefits and liabilities, if you will, are you willing to live with? How financial of you benefits and liabilities? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, for example. Um, there's this concept called moral hazard, and and moral hazard is essentially this this economic uh, finding that people are less likely to take care of things when they believe those things will be handled by someone else. So, for example, people who have health insurance are um, may take more risks with their health than someone who doesn't have health insurance or uh, renters may take less care of their uh, house or apartment knowing that there's uh, someone who owns the property. And, and for a lot of people within monogamous relationships, particularly those who, who are, are married, what happens is that they bank on this marriage license as being the bind that's keeping them together. And and therefore, they can easily put their relationship on autopilot um, and and start to, uh, you know, they, they, they attend less to the relationship. And, and after uh, so long, you know, one person may start to feel checked out and, and uh, it may even come to the other saying, you know, I'm done. Um, and that person then, you know, is oblivious because they've been on autopilot this whole time. And so I think particularly within monogam- monogamy, uh, uh, that idea of attending to the relationship, um, actively attending to the relationship through uh, communicating, um, where when one's in a non-monogamous relationship or in the BDSM um, uh, uh, dynamic, communication is so imperative, right? Um, And so, yes, absolutely. I think uh, those who want to have monogamy can can uh, find very helpful um, uh, skills from the non-monogamy kink BDSM community. I'm curious in, you know, you brought up BDSM and kink. So 
um, what, what things, what challenges seem to arise uh, with the clients that you work with in the BDSM and kink community? For the most part, I would say that it's the um, discomfort that one's uh, interests have on the partner. So, for example, this was years ago, but uh, I was new, fairly new as a sex therapist, and it was the day that I realized I have chosen the right profession. <laughs> uh, and and uh, on the same day, I had a couple come in, and the uh, one spouse loved sitting around in soiled diapers. Uh, and that's how this person uh, derived sexual pleasure. And and their, their spouse was uh, in the medical profession and uh, just couldn't understand why someone would find pleasure in that. Um, and, and found it, quite frankly, repulsive. Um, and so uh, a lot of the work was um, looking at autonomy and uh, you know, honoring that, that choice while at the same time uh, 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 reconciling that one can be, you know, having their, one can be entitled to their own disinterest or their own uh, reactions to thing, you know, things that one's partner does. Uh, about a few hours after that couple session, I had another client come in and uh, um, they were seeing me because their particular interest was smearing um, feces uh, on their chest. And they, that was something that really turned them on. And, and so having those experiences back to back, it was the moment that I was like, yes, this is, this is exactly why I got into this profession. And, and primarily uh, because these are, these are what could be very embarrassing uh, experiences to share with other people. You know, there's such a uh, potential for, um, judgment and shame and, and what have you. And to, again, have cultivating a space where these, these, uh, individuals and couples can come in and just share these parts of themselves. Um, to have that space, uh, is just a, a, a real, a real treasure for me. Yeah, I could definitely see that. You know, what's interesting is you were talking, it reminded me of the theme you mentioned earlier, which is just that individuality. Something I repeatedly kind of tell my clients is that there's the couple's sexual relationship, but you can have your own individual sexual relationship, you know, and that I think sometimes in, in relationships, people feel like they have to share everything. You know, like everything, yeah. you have to share everything sexual, you have to share all the same sexual desires. And what it really does is limit people um, from their own individual sexual relationships. Yeah. And so some of that like work is teaching people that it's okay to have your own space. Like you said, it was okay for her to not like it. It was okay for him to like it, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. that there can be a space mm -hmm. for him to act out his desires, but in a way that doesn't impact the relationship. And I think that's a really hard concept for some couples to wrap their mind around that, like, I can have my own, 
I can have my own sex life that doesn't include you. Because that's that, it kind of goes back to that possessiveness, that ownership of no, like this is ours and you don't have, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be like abrasive with it, but it's like you don't have a right to it. Like that's how it sometimes feels in certain relationships. That you don't have a right to have your own private sex life to some degree. What are your thoughts about that? I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, there are a lot of people who are just offended that their partner would masturbate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that uh, why would you want to masturbate? Why would you need to masturbate if you knew that, if you knew I was available? You know, why didn't you come to me to say you had um, uh, any sexual uh, interest or desire? As if masturbation was a, was a substitute for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, masturbation is just different. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, for, you know, there can be religious, uh, uh, upbringings that, that inform those, those sets of beliefs, um, or familial, um, uh, or just general cultural, um, rules, if you will. But that idea of, of honoring each other's uh, as separate sexual beings that has mystery. That's the component, right? Is that, that um, all too often the mystery of the other is, um, is kind of uh, filled, uh, or what am I trying to say? The mystery just evaporates, and uh, and 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 then the couple uh, uh, loses that spark. Um, you know, Esther Perel, who's a sex therapist, couples therapist, many people may have heard of, talks about you know uh, fire needs air, so there has to be space between partners. There has to be some separation between partners to feed the flames of, of desire. Um, I'll often ask couples, too, whether, you know, do they feel comfortable masturbating in front of the other? Um, and I generally find that those couples who uh, are individuals who feel comfortable masturbating in front of uh, another sexual partner tend to report much more satisfying sex lives in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when you were, as you talked, I, I kept thinking back to compersion. And so, like, people who seem to do well with this masturbation, like masturbation in their relationships, do you have a level of compersion when they think about their partner masturbating, for example? They'll... Mm-hmm. When you talk to them and you say, oh, what do you think about, you know, the fact that your partner masturbates, they'll have this idea of, well, that's sexy. I wonder what they're thinking about. That sounds cool. You know, like it's a, it's a compersion. They're taking joy and pleasure from their partner's pleasure. Whereas the people who really struggle with it seem to have um, like a feeling like that would there was a moment stolen in some way. Like there's a thievery yeah. going on. Like you, you could have had sex with me, but you didn't. 
Or, and I've seen this in the person who's masturbating too. So for um, a partner who had, I had to masturbate instead of us having sex. Like I call it resentful masturbating where they essentially, they're doing it, but they are angry about the fact that they are doing it instead of with each other. And I'm yeah. like, this is yeah. you can, and I have to like reteach people how to masturbate. <laughs> I'm like, this this is not a good plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's coming up for me just in hearing you um uh describe that is you know, again, I'm of the persuasion that uh what's forgotten among people who commit to monogamy. Is that there's there's they forget that monogamy, and this is true of course with all, all other um, ways of relating, but I'll stick with monogamy. Monogamy carries with it a certain set of rights and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And broadly speaking, the right is we get to use each other's bodies in ways that other people don't have the same right to, to use our bodies, hmm. right? So that's that's the right or privilege you might want to you might use that word uh, that we extend the other access to our bodies in ways that other people don't have the same level of access. The responsibility, and this is the piece that is often forgotten. The responsibility is that I am obligated, really, to be attentive to your sexual needs, all the while reserving the right to say no because it is my ability to say no to sex that gives yes its meaning. So that that idea of I have to be attentive, I have to be interested, I have to be curious about your sexual needs because we have removed from the equation the freedom to go down the street. And what I find too all too often is in is in these sexless marriages, which we define as sex less than once a month. There is a lack of of curiosity, a lack of of communicating of, with one another about their sexual needs, and and sometimes I'll ask those couples. I'll say, "What's the definition of monogamy?" And uh, they'll they'll arrive at, "Well, well, sex with one person," and I'll be like. Yeah, that's exactly right. Monogamy is sex with one person. Sex with one person. So if you're not having sex, and monogamy is sex with one person, then you mustn't be monogamous. You must be something else. I don't know what that something else is. And of course, I'm broadly defining sex. I'm not just talking about penetration. Mm -hmm. But that idea of, of how that couple spends time with each other in ways that are unique, um, that feel sexually fulfilling in whatever ways they define that. Uh, that loss of, 
of interest in the others is a, a common theme in those couples who ha- end up having sexless relationships. Well, that complacency grows over time and and honestly, it's very much linked to obligatory sex, right? Like this feeling that you have to do this, that I'm the person who has to be responsible for all these things. You know, I hear I hear that theme a lot with my clients, just this sense of, I want to want to do this. I don't want to feel like I have to do this to, to do some sort of, oh, what do they call it? Maintenance sex is <laughs> what I hear. Um, which, I mean, I, it's hard because, you know, I mean, I work with all kinds of clients, right? And many of my clients do wish to remain monogamous in some to some degree, right? And so there's some mm. version of how are we working at our sex life and putting effort into it. But to your point, there needs to be this sense of I have a choice in this. I'm doing this because I want to, not yeah. because I have to. And there's got to be something in it for me, you know? And I think uh, when people feel like, that sense of just uh, I'm obliged to do this I just have to get this done or this person's going to get mad or we haven't hit our quota so to speak yeah that's right that's <laughs> right just tired. Um, and that uh, obligation you know I, I'm of the I'm of the belief again that we're not we, we often talk about being entitled to love yeah I hate entitlement um, for some and, reason <laughs> Fucking entitlement. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. A, when you know that makes love obligatory, mm-hmm. right? And, and that kind of love is soulless. At the same time, I have found that I've found couples who talk about how they gift sex to their partner at times. Mm-hmm. So there, there may not be a total wanting. Um, in the sense that there isn't this strong desire, uh, 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 and yet they can they can gift sex to their partner, uh, and and in that process, in the in that gifting, um, they might find that find that the want or the desire uh, turns get started. You know that that stoking that fire, and and so that that desire, that want kind of kicks in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely seen that too. You know, what's interesting about the idea of sex as a gift, I mean, there's a lot of things interesting about it, but I think it's something that people do when they're in long-term relationships as well because that the natural desire mm-hmm. that people have in the beginning just seems to die some. Um, but I was also mm-hmm. curious if you saw... Like I was thinking about asexual clients. I don't know to what degree you work with clients who are on the asexual spectrum, but I could imagine them using that particular idea because it's like, you know, an asexual person really just struggles to feel any form of desire uh, naturally. So it's almost like a choice for them to like, I'm going to engage sexually, but it's not from any sort of hormonal interest or, you know, longing in the sort of way that some people might feel desire. And so I could totally imagine using that gift idea in an asexual relationship. But I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, you know, it's a uh, certainly a phenomenon. You know, there there are certainly uh, people who don't experience desire. It's just is not an area that I do much work in. Um, you know, most of the clients who come and see me come because they've they they 
lost that sense of desire and they want to, um, you know, get, get the spark back. I gotcha. Well, so there's something that you did put on your questionnaire that I want to ask you about. Um, you put something about highly sensitive persons. So I'm kind of curious what that concept is and how it relates to what you do. Yes, yes. Um, highly sensitive persons is a, a, a temperament, just like introversion, extroversion. Uh, and about 20% of the population are highly sensitive. And, and, and some of the core, core characteristics of highly sensitive people are those who are, uh, think very deeply. So there's this depth of thinking. Um, uh, they tend to also experience degrees of over-arousability. So, uh, you know, too much of a sound, too much of a smell. Uh, when too many demands are placed on them at once, uh, they may they they may feel overwhelmed, um, and then uh, emotional intensity. They feel things deeply, and then the last is sensory sensitivity. They tend to pick up things that other people might miss. So they have a very keen sense of awareness of of what's going on uh, around them. And uh, uh, I have worked uh, extensively with highly sensitive persons. I'm being an HSP myself. And and for your listeners, if they're interested in taking an assessment, a free assessment, and to determine um, their, uh, if they're HSPs, they can do that at hsperson.com. Um, and that's uh, the website of Dr. Elaine Aaron, who is the um, really the foremost researcher on the highly sensitive person temperament. Um, and so working with that population has been very helpful when it comes to relationships, in part because um, they uh, HSPs may feel, for example, uh, often fatigued because they've spent uh, a, a lot of time in a high, highly chaotic environment. And, and so they may find that they just lack energy to be intimate or energy to engage in more conversation that uh, they prize, uh, they prize the time to be alone so that they can recharge. Um, about 75% of highly sensitive people are also introverts. Um, and so there's that, that overlap, although, uh, one can certainly be an extrovert and be highly sensitive, uh, and I, I, you know, generally find that uh, uh, the great majority of clients who use uh, psychotherapy services uh, they they tend to be a highly sensitive person. Um, but give, given that eighty percent of the world aren't highly sensitive, it's uh, uh, it can be easy for partners or even um, clinicians to pathologize some of the qualities of the highly sensitive person when, in fact, I see that temperament more like a superpower than certainly a, a, a form of pathology. I gotcha. So in, when, when you're working with somebody who struggles in this area then or superpowers in that area, as you said, what are some of the things that you have to help couples kind of navigate 
the the real first um, uh, step for me is to educate them around this temperament, and then uh, help them to see that how it shows up in the relationship uh, uh, no longer has to be taken personally. So, for example, um, perhaps a partner is fine going to a party. Um, but doesn't want to spend all night at the party. Um, that they find it particularly draining, and and so uh, if if one is with a non-HSP partner, they can just understand that it isn't because the partner is a killjoy, but rather uh, that that is one way that they're taking care of themselves, or. Um, uh, uh, if 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 a partner, the HSP partner, um, needs to turn off the radio in the car while their partner is talking to them, in order to be able to focus on what the partner is saying, because it's just too much, uh, uh, too much stimulation uh, going on at, at once, um, and so that educating the the individual with HSP, but also the the, the partner. About how those characteristics uh, show up, you know, again, can be different for different people. My HSP shows up much more as in sound, um, uh, where others it might be other forms of, of stimulation. Um, I, I often share a story about how uh, I was in a long-term relationship with someone, and the pitch of their voice at times, not all the time, but at times, uh, would just be so grating. And it had zero to do with what the person was saying. Uh, you know, for as far as I know, they might have just had some allergy and it just changed very subtly the picture of their voice. And I, I just found it incredibly overwhelming. Hmm. I see. So it's making people aware of how that's impacting their partner so that instead of them taking it personally, they can see it as, oh, okay, this is how they're managing essentially these um, sensitivities, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and and you know again, uh, kind of on the same similar level as, as left-handed persons, right? You know, they have to live in a right-handed dominant society, and and HSPs are very very much the same. We we do live in a very, uh, oh, you know, I would say overly stimulated uh, environment, and uh, self-regulation. And learning how to be optimally aroused, so so not under aroused or over aroused, but that for a lot of HSPs, that's a very narrow margin. Um, uh, and and so there's a great deal of effort highly sensitive persons have to spend in trying to ensure that they're they stay in that that uh, optimal degree of arousal. It's really interesting. Well, Dr. Tom, I just wanted to thank you. We're actually towards the end of the podcast, so I did want to thank you for coming on the show. And I guess I wanted to ask you to share with our listeners how people can find you if they want your help. Thank you so much. Yeah, so they can go to drtommurray.com uh, or Path to Wellness. And I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Tom Murray. All right, great. And of course, you guys have been listening to the About Sex podcast, and I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. You can find me at 
www.therapistinstlouis.com. Or you can find this podcast at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. Thank you again for joining me, Dr. Tom. Thank you. I'm so glad that you've been on the show. And for the rest of you, stay kinky, St. Louis.